Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Well, it's not quite Frank Turek here. You probably recognize the difference in the voice here. This is Jay Warner Wallace sitting in for the all-knowing, all-powerful Dr. Frank Turek. If you're a fan of the show, you probably already know that this is a different voice than you're usually hearing. And he's asking to sit in because, as you know, Frank is talking around the country constantly. And I don't think I know anyone who talks more than Frank Turek. And I'm not even talking about his speaking events. I'm talking about at home where he's probably driving his family crazy. As a result, he has lost his voice and trying to reserve it for several speaking events that are occurring right now as, you know, this weekend, as this broadcast is airing, Frank is on the road to Maryland and getting ready to speak at uh, five services or three or four or five services of a church. So uh, to give him a little bit of a breather so he can have enough voice to do that, he's asked me to sit in for him and talk a little bit about how uh, Christianity and Christian worldview affects the way we live. And I just love uh, to do that because it seems to me we can examine some characteristics of culture, of technology, of life in America, and, and, and start to think about, well, have we been living it? Have we been experiencing it through our Christian worldview? Or do we allow other worldviews to shape the way we interact with the world around us? When I say worldview, I simply mean that filter through which we look at everything. Worldviews typically answer three important questions, right? How did we get here? Why is it so messed up? What went wrong? And third, how can we fix it? And a number, every worldview offers answers to those three important questions. And as once you have a worldview in place, you start to look at, you know, surprisingly, you might think that a number of Christians, the Christians in our country, they, they hold a Christian worldview, right? So they're looking at the world and making decisions based on that Christian worldview. They're running everything through the filter that they call their Christian worldview. But that isn't always the case. And we see this often in surveys that are taken. We see this often in uh, polling on certain issues, key issues that are maybe very clear in terms of the teaching of Scripture. You might think, well, if I'm, I claim to be a Christian, a Christ follower, then I'm going to have to make sure that I align my views on any given topic with the teaching of the person I say I am following, right? Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. But even though that we may say we are Christ followers, we don't always align our views with the claims and the uh, teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. So I love to kind of look at the culture and so many uh, surveys are being done that tell us certain things about culture and about technology and how technology affects the culture. And then ask myself the question, wow, are we allowing ourselves as Christ followers to, 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 to use our Christian worldview as a lens or are we simply kind of persuaded by the culture around us to drop all of our Christian world, or do we allow other worldviews to kind of seep in and make certain decisions for us? I will tell you, I have been tracking um, the decline of Christianity in America by way of polls really since I served as a youth pastor in the early 2000s. Because even back then, I, I couldn't help but notice that there was this really astonishing rate 
at which young Christians were leaving the church according to polling, right? And if, you, if you're aware of this, if you've been tracking, you know that it's kind of hard to argue otherwise. I have seen uh, some of us in the Christian community and Christian leadership who have tried to say, well, no, it's not as bad as you think it is. You know, it's, it's really not, not as bad. Well, I get that. But if you look at the overall trajectory of polling related to both Christian population, those who claim to be Christ followers in the culture, whether they're adult or otherwise, and when you poll young adults, you will see that we have a shrinking church, at least a, a group of people who would say that they are Christ followers, that group seems to be shrinking at about a percent a year. And there's a bunch of surveys out there. As a matter of fact, one of the latest surveys out there is a survey that was done by the Pew Research Center study, and they surveyed more than 4,700 uh, U.S. adults. And what they asked was the question, um, if, do you believe in God? And if so, what do you mean when you say you believe in God? And that poll just gives us another kind of distressing, there's some parts of it clearly that you could, and I don't want to be an alarmist about this. I think we have to be careful not to bang the, the, the drum and be alarmed about this, the state of the church, be alarmed about uh, the state of young Americans who are believers. But let's face it, the poll is are, are pretty clear. We know this for sure, that these kinds of polls say the same kinds of things over and over and over again. Number one, our numbers are shrinking. It's hard to deny that. Only about 56% of Americans say they believe in God as described in the Bible, very specifically, the Christian God. And uh, the number of people who claim a belief in God, who self-identify as Christians, that is steadily shrinking each year, according to Pew surveys that go back over a decade. Number two, our members are less educated. Now, this is interesting. Of those who have a high school education or less, a high school education or less, 94% say they believe in God as described in the Bible. But as our collective educational level kind of increases, right, collective belief decreases. Of college graduates that are surveyed, only 45% believe in the biblical God. So our numbers are shrinking, our members are less educated. Number three, our ranks are aging. The younger we are, the less likely we are to believe in the biblical God. I'll give you an example of this. 65% of baby boomers believe in God as described in the Bible, but only 43% of millennials hold that view. Uh, as a matter of fact, a recent Barna survey that was done on Gen Z, ages 3 to 18, they say that they're far more likely to be atheists than older age groups. So what's happening is younger people are less likely to say they believe in the biblical God. So our ranks are aging. And lastly, our understanding is withering. Okay, so of those who identify as Christians, get this, only 80% said they believed in the biblical God. Hear me on that. For those who said, yep, I'm a Christ follower, I am a biblical Christian. Well, only 80% of those people, you think that's, that's, probably, that's a high number, but that means that 20% of people who say they are Christians say they believe in a higher power or a spiritual force other than the God described in the Bible. Now, if you're a Christian and you're listening to me today, I bet you probably find those statistics a bit troubling, right? I mean, I do. Now, the good news, there is some good news, because beneath the stark numbers I just told you about, there are some, you know, these dire statistics we're talking about. There's this undercurrent I see of hope and opportunity, and I want to talk about some of that today. But let me just start this first section by saying to you that lots of folks, I don't care if they are getting older, or if the numbers are shrinking, or if our members are less educated, as a group, as a culture, Americans have not yet given up on God. Yeah, fewer Americans claim a Christian affiliation or a belief in God as described in the Bible. Okay, fine. But America is still highly spiritual, even if less religious. 
88% of Americans report in believing in some kind of God, some kind of higher power, some kind of spiritual force, even if that being is not Yahweh, not the God of the Bible. In fact, the Pew reports that I'm reading reveal that as many people move away from a belief in a biblical God, I mean, that's a large number, they're still far more likely to move toward a belief in a higher power than toward atheism. Hear what I just said. Even those people who are moving away from a belief in God are not moving to atheism. They are spiritual believers of some kind that thinks there's a higher power out there that loves people. They would say that higher power is omniscient. They would say that higher power has protected them or rewarded them. So even those who claim no religious affiliation, 17% still said they believed in God as described in the Bible. So get this, people who have walked away from organized religions still may believe in the God of the Bible. And 53% of these folks said they believed in a higher power or spiritual force. Get this, even 18% of people who identify as atheists said they believed in some kind of higher spiritual power. So before you throw up your hands, before you get nervous about all this, there's some bad news, just here's some good news. We live in a country that's filled with spiritual seekers who believe a higher power exists and that that higher power is working in their lives. For one reason or another, many have rejected the God of the Bible. I get that. But, but many have done so without ever coming to know him. Instead, they may only know us, his followers. Have we been able to answer their questions? Have we been able to present a reasonable case? That's what this show does. So join me on the backside of the commercial. We're going to start to look at how culture is shaped by our Christian worldview. All right, so here we get back at it. We've been talking a little bit about uh, the nature of culture, the nature of our Christian worldview, and how it ought to inform how we process things in our culture, and sadly, how sometimes it doesn't. I am Jane uh, Warner Wallace, sitting in for you for Frank Turk, who is resting his fragile voice today so he can uh, be with you again next week. You know, this it does happen when you are working as, you know, your job is to talk constantly uh, and to give talks, and that's what Frank does. As a matter of fact, let me just tell you where he's going to be, since we're talking about that. Uh, we've got talks coming up. Both of us are working uh, pretty pretty uh, actively this month. Frank will be at the Unapologetic Evangelism Conference in Waco, Texas, along with another group of great speakers. I think he's there with Mark Middleberg. He's there with uh, Mary Jo Sharp. That is at um, on Saturday, February 23rd. So you can look on his calendar at the crossexamine.org website. On the same weekend, February 23rd, I will be doing Forensic Faith Seminars at um, at a Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. So we can kind of catch either one or the, or the other of us uh, this next weekend coming up as we're trying to make the case for Christianity. We talked about this in the last section. Why do we need to do that? Well, because a lot of times the only thing that people see in the Christian uh, sphere are, Chris, are Christ followers. And, and, and a lot of us are going to be the first line of information that anyone gets about Jesus of Nazareth. Are we prepared? I will tell you something that I think is actually impacting our culture. And it's media consumption, right? It's how we 
um, engage video, how we, the, the media that's out there, movies, um, books, all the things that we engage as just media, cons- we consume so much media. And the way we consume it, how we consume media, I think it does threaten, in some ways, our ability to tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth. I think in that case, because it's threatening the way we talk about Jesus, you have to at least admit it poses a threat to the future of Christianity. And And it's not what you think it is. Look, a lot of Christian leaders, they are concerned about the impact of visual media, right? But a lot of their concern centers around kind of the moral messaging that exists in contemporary movies, uh, television shows. If you just scan Netflix, Amazon Prime, you're going to see a collection of op- uh, of options there, most of which are not telling stories in reality about uh, about topics that hold a Christian worldview. Most of those stories are probably things you're going to have to filter through your Christian worldview. And if you just accept what they say wholeheartedly, they are not probably in line with your Christian worldview. And I think that's where a lot of leaders would say, yeah, it's the moral messaging that is non-Christian, that is in so many contemporary movies and television shows, even in commercials, if you watch the commercials that were run during the Super Bowl. A lot of those commercials are sending messages that are not Christian messages. I get that, because most of all that stuff is not going to run contrary to the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of the New Testament authors. But that's not even the biggest threat, I think, that our median conception poses to the Christian worldview. It's not so much the content that I'm worried about. To me, it's the way we consume information, the way we consume news, um, the way we consume entertainment, that I think that stuff poses a bigger threat than the actual content of the media. I'm pointing at you out to something that I, I, I'm not the first person to see this, but I, I'm trying to see it through my Christian lens. There was a recent article in USA Today that really illustrated this problem for me. And here's what it talked about. It talked about that young people ages 18 to 34 are really not interested in traditional television networks. They're not. They, they've moved away from that. They are, um, they, all the ratings, the, the Nielsen ratings show you that, quote, for the four weeks ending from October 28th of last year all the way through, to the start of the official new TV season, the number of people ages 18 to 34 using TV, the, this traditional three networks, right, that are used to be a, all that was available to us 30 years ago, that has plunged another 15%. It's even down 36% from 2014. The drop-off in the traditional networks, 18% from last year and 48% since 2014 is even more pronounced amongst teens. teens. It's teens, young people, who don't see the limits that I saw as a teen. I'm 57 now. When I was a teen, there were no other options. If you missed a show, right, you were watching your series you love, and you missed one episode, well, guess what? You, you couldn't watch that. There's no way to even record it. You, you didn't get a chance to see that again until it came around six months from now in the reruns. And if, it didn't, if you didn't catch it then and, and this show didn't go to syndication, you would never get a chance to see it again. Then hopefully they would release it later on, on on VHS tape, right? And now it's DVDs or live streaming. So so that's not the way it is today. Look, it's, it's not that young people are consuming media less. That's not what accounts for the drop-off in uh, media consumption amongst teams and with the, 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 the major networks. It's far from it. Instead, younger generations, according to this uh, article on USA Today, are growing up with more choices at their fingertips. Doesn't that make sense? You know how many choices are out there. 
you know how many places you can go to watch. You can go to YouTube to spend. I've seen kids just start watching videos on YouTube and just keep on swiping. Keep on and before long, four hours have gone by there. That's just another place they can go. They do they really have to watch ABC, CBS, or NBC? No. All the cable. There are cable networks out there that if I told you there's a network called X, you would say, really? I never heard of that. Well, because there's a billion of them out there, okay? And and you got lots of choices. And that reality, I think, threatens Christianity in America just as it threatens nearly every other art overarching worldview. Hear what I'm saying. The fact that young people are growing up with more choices at their fingerprints, at their fingertips, I think actually threatens Christianity or any overarching worldview in America. And why? Because given our changing habits, right, the way we consume media, Americans are less likely to share the same meta-narrative. Now, what I mean by meta-narrative, and Oxford Dictionary describes it perfectly, is this overarching account of interpretation of events and circumstances that provides a pattern or structure for people's beliefs and gives meaning to our experiences, its worldview. Our worldview is a meta-narrative. It answers the questions. Why are we here? How did it get so messed up? How can we fix it? And media shapes our meta-narrative. So when there are fewer media choices, right, like there used to be 30 years ago, fewer choices in the smorgasbord of worldviews, we are far more likely to share a view of the world because all of us are watching the same media. We only have three choices. And on any given night, if that show is popular, we're all watching it. It was timed out. You all had to be there sitting at your TV at the exact same time in order to watch it. And so we ended up sharing a view of the world that came from our media consumption because we had so few choices. In fact, before the information age dawned in America, few people were even aware of other worldviews outside of whatever was being uh, dictated by the three networks. But that has all changed. Now everyone has access to information. And it's all on competing either, you know, social, uh, political, or economic systems. Whatever it is you've got some interest in, you can now get information about it. The entire palette of social, political, economic worldviews is out there, but so is the entire palette of religious worldviews. It used to be that you might only encounter that if you're a boomer and listening to this, or even if you're a Gen X and you're listening to this, it might have been that the only place you would first come in contact with other worldviews was when you went to university. But now you can come in contact with every other worldview just from the end of your arm on your social media platform or on your glowing rectangle you call your phone. We have access to all of these competing worldviews. And more importantly, get this, we can custom tailor our media consumption. We can amplify certain views. Just only watch those networks, only watch those um, websites, only watch those video uh, creators. We can ignore whatever view of the world we want to ignore because we can limit our, we've got so many choices and access to all of them. We can tailor, custom tailor what we consume. We don't have to watch what's on ABC tonight. We don't have to watch what's on those three networks. We've got thousands and millions of choices that are live streamed or we can uh, uh, control that when we watch them, how we watch them. We don't have to watch the same relatively unified media choices that our parents and grandparents did. Instead, we can retreat into our own crafted realities. As individualized as those may be, we can custom tailor those and saturate ourselves in narratives and stories that fit our little whims, our little fancies, our little personal opinions. We live in a time in history when overarching cultural meta narratives, that's what Christianity is, 
are just less pervasive and less influential than ever before. The, the, the technology of choice, that's what we have here in the internet. We have the technology of choice and that allows us to create our own micro narratives. We still love stories, but we're just less likely to share the same story. And I think that's why our current ability, our current you know, capacity to freely consume media, that, that's why I think it poses a threat to Christianity. It encourages us to isolate ourselves, right? You see it all the time. You can, you can follow who you want to follow, who just they reflect your worldview. You can follow those people on social media. You can limit your media consumption to just their videos, their podcasts, their shows. You don't have to dip your foot in what everybody else is looking at because we've got choices. And our choices are immediately available to us on our smartphones. We can steep ourselves in micro-narratives at the expense of shared narratives. And those shared narratives, they used to unify us. Those shared uh, macro narratives, those meta narratives, those narratives, those worldview narratives used to unify us as a people group. They actually provided us with common language, right? Because the language of that worldview, we all talked it. Common values, the values of that worldview, we all adopted those. Common expectations, whatever moral values were set, we all knew those were the expectations we all shared. Look. To be sure, Christianity isn't the only overarching worldview that's going to be impacted by that shift away from shared story, okay? It's not just us. Other political views and meta-narratives, other social meta-narratives, and other religious meta-narratives will also shrink in their impact. They will also be diminished in importance. In fact, I think any effort to provide a shared pattern or structure for people's beliefs that will give us meaning to our experiences, the way the definition uh, talks about meta-narratives, I think that's going to be impeded by our growing desire for autonomy in our media consumption. That's what it is. It's about autonomy. So here's what my whole point in all this. Sometimes we, are, uh, we, we complain about the division that we see in America, right? It's not just that the other side used to be, well, hey, I'm right on this issue and you're wrong. And now it's the, hey, I'm right on this issue and you're wrong and you are evil for holding that other position. That's how divided we are as a country right now. There are some things I know if I even bring them up, I'm gonna divide my audience right in half and there's no reasonable middle on lots of issues anymore. And I think that I'm inclined to feel sad about that, to feel like it's hard for me to have a conversation when everyone's so polarized and we won't even dialogue, we just wanna throw hand grenades at each other, right? But when I feel inclined, right, to complain about that, to complain about that division that I feel in America or about this declining state of common values we used to hold as I was growing up or, or whatever it is you feel like, hell, hey, well, in the good old days, you used to be that way well stop for a second take a minute to examine your own media consumption i think in the end it's our unlimited personalized access is what is at uh, to blame here we'll talk more about that and other ways that christian worldview can impact your culture right after the break Welcome back to Cross Examine Radio. This is Jay Warner Wallace sitting in for the um, all-powerful, all-knowing Frank Turek. That's why I have to address him every time we're together. Did you know that? All of his friends, he makes us address him that way, uh, usually in bow at some point, just so we can recognize commonly his greatness. 
And we get a chance to do that. Mike Adams and I, I get to join Frank at our uh, Fearless Faith conferences, which you can learn more about at the website, crossexamined.org. There's crossexamined with a D at the end, dot O-R-G. You can go to our events page and you can see all the different ways. You'll see one of the tabs under events is for Fearless Faith Seminars. And that's a place where uh, Frank and I and uh, Mike Adams, we get to talk about the Christian worldview. And when we first started doing that, we were calling that um, college prep. We called it the cross-examined college prep seminars. And we realized as we began this that, man, you know, not a lot of people, it's like, well, can, I, can I come? I'm not going to college. We, we knew there was a, an important need to, to prepare young Christians before they entered in their university years, right? And, and so we, we wanted to do something positive about that. So we designed this idea of, of doing th- two days, basically, a Friday night, Saturday, or maybe a Sunday night, Monday night, or a Sunday, Monday. You know, we, we could be flexible about that. But the idea was that we would take some time to help young people prepare them before they... We discovered that, they're, that it's basically it opened wide up because people were like, well, I want to come. I'm not, I'm not 19, I'm not 18, but I'm 38, but I still want to know what to say, because I still have these doubts in my own head. I still have these questions I need answered in my own head. So we changed the name of it, called it Fearless Faith, just to open it up to everyone, because we realized that there's a need in the church that has been untapped, that has been un, uh, a, a, basically a, a thirst that has been unquenched, that we could, we could actually meet with these Fearless Faith seminars. So you can learn more about that at crossexamine.org. But I want to talk about something related to that. We've been talking about Christian worldview and culture, some of the technological influences that that impact our culture and the way we think about Christianity, even impact the way that we can share the truth with others. Uh, And I just want to take a second here in this segment to talk about something that, that Frank and I do talk a lot about. And it is the shrinking church, right? It is that group of young Christians that seem to be less interested in the church than their older counterparts. This does not mean less interested in God, which is what we talked about in an earlier segment on today's show. But it does mean that we see a growth of what are called religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. You've probably heard us talk about that on the show here before. It's just this idea that people, when asked if they identify with any particular specific religious group, will say, well, no, I, I identify with no, uh, none, no religious affiliation. They'll hit the nun box, and so they are called the religious nuns. And the vast majority, of, and I've been following this for about 15 years, more than that, actually. I've got data on our website at coldcasechristianity.com. If you just go to the updated, uh, just search for updated in the search bar at my website, and you'll see that the one article I continue to update, I just did it again last month, is uh, the, the collection of surveys about the trajectory of the church in America and the trajectory of young people in America. And I recently, one of the more recent Pew Research reports that came out at the end of last year, I thought it was really interesting. Because it, it gave me some insight, again, which we kind of already knew, but it just further amplified it, as to why young ex-Christians are ex-Christians to begin with. Why, why they leak? Why are they now saying that they identify with nothing in particular, rather than with a specific religious group? You know, the vast majority of those folks are ex-Christians. And the most of them are under the age of 35. And so when they ask this group, that group, that age group of why they are, they're all religious nuns, but why do you now reject religious affiliation? You know, give us, you know, they, they provided them with six possible responses. Now, I'm always uh, hesitant 
when I hear a survey is surveying something and they're giving you multiple choice rather than letting you just write in whatever your reason is. Because you may not find your reason in those six possible responses. But anyway, aside from that, that Pew report at the end of last year reported that most religious nuns left because they, they question a lot of religious teaching. That's what they said. Now, again, remember that phraseology was not something they provided. It was the, 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 the authors of the study gave that as one of the options. They question a lot of religious teaching. As a matter of fact, 51% agreed with that statement. Now, it doesn't tell you what it is they're questioning, but it does say that they at least would say, I identify with that statement. Some said they don't like the positions that churches take on social political issues. 46% agreed with that statement. It's easy to kind of think that maybe the thing that they question about religious teaching is something social or political. I don't think that's necessarily the case, but it is clear that because they don't believe it's necessarily true, they then don't accept the positions that churches take on moral issues. Why, why should I if I don't believe that the, the, the larger meta-narrative the supernatural claims you're making in scripture, scripture about a, a man who rose from the grave, if I don't believe those things actually happen, then why in the world should I assign much value to the person who rose from the grave allegedly and makes these statements about moral claims? Uh, to a lesser extent in that survey in the Pew, in the Pew study last year, the, uh, at the end of last year, it's been about four months now since they released it, um, some people said they agreed with statements like, I don't like religious organizations. Some said, I don't like religious leaders. Some say religion is irrelevant to me. Look, from that data, I think you might infer that Christians are leaving the faith because they no longer agree with the teaching of the church, or they don't like religious people, <laughs> organizations, or leaders. But I don't think that's why they're leaving at all. Because one glaring statistic that was largely overlooked in that last collection of data by Pew Research Center is this. When religious nuns were asked to identify the most important reason of these six they were offered, what is the most important reason for not affiliating with the religion? The largest response that was that none of those six responses that Pew provided were actually very important. Hear me. They gave these six options, and I kind of gave them to you, right? They're either they question a lot of religious teaching, they don't like the social positions the church takes, or they, they have problems with religious organizations or leaders, or, or they think a religion is irrelevant to me. But when in reality, when they ask, okay, of those six, which is most important? The largest group said, well, really, none of that's that important. Really? So basically, it sounds to me like we didn't pick the right words to use in the survey to begin with, because if you're saying which is the most important, and they say, well, no, it's because they didn't allow the respondents to answer in their own words. So even though respondents searched for an answer, right, that was pretty approximate to their experience, most didn't believe that any of those reasons that were offered by Pew were very important to them, at least not when deciding to abandon their religious identity. So what then is the real reason young Christians and other religious believers leave the faith? I'll tell you what I think it is. It's revealed in a prior, two years ago, before this other one, now it's three, in 2016, Pew Research did another survey. But in this one, they allowed the respondents to answer in their own words. In that study in 2016, the nuns gave different kinds of answers. They said they no longer identify with a religious group because they no longer believed it was true. And when they ask, why don't you believe it's true? Many said their views about God had quote-unquote evolved. In some reporting, having a crisis of faith. And the specific explanations they gave for why they walked out, when they allowed to use their own words, were very enlightening. 
This is what they would say, quote, learning about evolution when I went away to college, unquote, was one of the reasons why they were no longer in the faith. Some said, quote, religion is the opiate of the people, unquote. Quote, rational thought makes religion go out the window, unquote. Uh, quote, lack of any sort of scientific or specific evidence of a creator, unquote. Or, quote, I just realized somewhere along the way that I didn't really believe it, unquote. And finally, quote, I'm doing a lot more learning, studying, and kind of making decisions myself rather than listening to someone else, unquote. Now, that data in which we allowed the respondents, young respondents, to tell us specifically in their own words, rather than give them six options. This is, I think, much more revealing. That data from 2016, I think, actually explains why ex-Christians question a lot of religious teaching as the one we, when you ask, well, I, I, I question a lot of religious teaching. Well, I can't assume I know what their te the teaching is that they are, are questioning. But if you ask them what gives you, what are your barriers to belief, they start giving you the specific answers. And, and, what, and what is it? It's always some form of rational or relational, because I think this is always, always put together. It's about truth in the context of relationships. So don't be surprised when people either no longer believe that your truth claims are true anymore, or they're having problems with their relationships in the church. Well, those are going to be always found in the list of reasons why someone leaves. Because always we are trying to offer truth claims in the context of relationship. You cannot separate those two things. Sorry, folks, you can't. If you think, I know all the truth claims of Christianity, well, you still have to earn the right to speak those claims to people through relationships. These are not two separate polar extremes. We're not told to simply become knowers of truth. We are called to be lovers of people so that when we are also knowers of truth, that, that knowledge actually has a way to be expressed. The teaching they question when asked, these young people, seems to be about the very existence of God. And that's consistent with all the explanations I see in a variety of other recent studies, which I have posted on our website in that one article that says updated, just search for it on the website, updated, and you'll see are young people really leaving the church? When Christians walk away from their faith, more often than not, it's due to some form of intellectual skepticism. Ex-Christians often describe religious beliefs as innately blind or innately unreasonable. Now, if you listen to this radio show much, you know that is not the view we hold here at crossexamine.org. Um, that's not doesn't even accurately reflect the rich kind of evidential history of Christianity to begin with. Look, the psalmist appealed to the design and fine-tuning of the universe to demonstrate the existence of God in Psalm 19. Jesus appealed to both eyewitness testimony in John 16 and indirect evidence of his miracles in John 10 when he was arguing for the authority of his statements, right? The disciples even identified themselves as eyewitnesses, that's called direct evidence, folks, and appealed to their observations of the resurrection. They said, hey, we saw this with our own eyes when they were making the case for, for Jesus in the book of Acts. Ex-Christians, I think, leave the church often because they don't think anyone in the church can answer their questions or make a case. That's why I, when I came out of my work as a cold case homicide detective, where I spent all my career working investigations, I knew that it was time for us as Christians to accept the responsibility to be able to make a case, to explain what Christianity teaches and why the propositions of Christianity are true, especially when you're engaging young people who have legitimate 
questions. And folks, if you're a parent right now, this is not something you can just assign to a book or assign, listen to this podcast, that'll answer your questions. Why? Because it's truth in the context of relationships. Yes, I've written books. Cold Case Christianity was our first book. God's Crime Scene, Forensic Faith. Tell you what, your kids don't want to listen to Jay Warner Wallace tell them whether this is true or not. They want truth in the context of relationship. That means as parents, we have to be the most important first line of defense, the most valuable apologist that your kid will ever know is you. That's what this show hopes to do, is to train you up to be the apologist of your family. We'll take a break, come back in our last section. I'll wrap up one more uh, observation about culture. done this week talking about how culture and Christianity can sometimes clash and what we can do to look at culture through our Christian worldview. I'm Jay Warner Wallace sitting in for the, the uh, how can I say it, what's another superlative I can give to Frank Turk? I don't know, but I think actually I'm not going to say anything good about him in this, in this section because uh, he failed to send me the check for the fourth segment in which he's going to pay me to say something nice about him, so I'm not going to do it. Now what I do want to talk about though is a little bit, uh, I hardly ever talk about politics. I just don't. And I'll tell you why I don't, because I always think that politics are somehow downstream a little bit of other issues that I want to camp on as an investigator. I work cold cases for so many years. I always believe that I want to make a case for why the Bible is reliable, why the New Testament is reliable, and you ought to take it seriously. Because I believe if people thought that the Bible was reliable and they took it seriously, we would end up in the same place on all the other cultural issues, whether they're political, social, economic, whatever. If we all held the same worldview that was informed by a view that says, yes, you know what? The Bible is teaching truth. It's reliable. I can trust it. And two, I ought to take it seriously enough not to cherry pick from one verse or another, but to actually be able to, in my own mind, to systematize the theology that's in Scripture so I can allow it to inform my Christian worldview. Wow, if everyone did that, we would still disagree about a lot of things. I get that. But they wouldn't be the major things. They'd be secondary issues. But I do want to talk a little bit about politics on a show that typically does, which is Frank's show. And I wanted to say um, that I, I recently was reading a, a press release from the Associated Press. It was from the NORC Center for Public Affairs Research Poll that measured the degree to which Americans thought it was important for political candidates to have strong religious beliefs. Now, I looked at all that data, and I, I, you know, it is, it's pretty nuanced, and so I don't want to make broad overarching, but there are some things I, I thought were interesting, especially the statement that was quoted in the survey, that the, the poll found that just 25% of Americans say that it's very or extremely important that a candidate has strong religious beliefs. You hear what I just said? Only a quarter of us when polled, think it's important that a candidate has strong religious beliefs. Now, the problem, of course, with that is it's not, it's so nuanced. It's, I could ask, well, what do you mean by has strong religious beliefs? That Those kinds of secondary questions are never usually asked in a poll like this. So I don't want to make too much of any one poll, right? But I think it's unsurprising that only a small number of Americans 
would say that uh, it's important for a candidate to have strong religious beliefs, given what we just talked about in the last segment, the shrinking number of people in America that would even identify themselves as belonging to any specific religious group. The the, The growth of the spiritual or religious nuns, I should say the religious, not spiritual, religious nuns, as that group grows, don't be surprised that people are less and less interested in religious candidates. But I just want to offer three, I think, good reasons why believers and non-believers, both sides, should want their political candidates to be religious. Now, I was an atheist until I was 35. Not a believer, became a believer as an adult by simply examining the Gospels as eyewitness accounts and testing them given the same platform that I used to test Uh, other eyewitness statements, right? There's a certain template that I use. I applied that to the Gospels. And for me, I said, I I don't see how I can deny the realities that deny the claims of these Gospels. But I wasn't a Christian at the time when I started investigating these. And even then, I'm I'm, I'm talking to both the the Jim today, the J. Warner Wallace today, who is a Christian, and the J. Warner Wallace back of 1997 or 696, who was not a, a Christian. I think both J. Warner Wallace's should want their, their, their political candidates to be religious, and I want to give you quickly just a few reasons why, I think. Three good reasons why. First, religious identi- identity religious identity clarifies worldview. And, and religious candidates, their identity clarifies their, or at least it ought to. Look, political parties in America, we, they adopt party platforms, right? They, they do that to give voters a sense of what they, they believe, uh, what they think is important, what they're going to do if they're elected. Those platforms are rewritten every four years, and candidates may or may not even accept everything in their platforms, you know, the planks they talk about in party platforms, the, the positions related to specific issues. I mean, they don't have, candidates may or may not, they may have a personal reason to reject a specific plank of the platform. Voters don't get a clear, detailed report that outlines, you know, that, that, that makes an outline of all the specific ways that each candidate personally sees the world especially in the state and local elections where there's, the campaigns are so much smaller. But let me ask you this, if those candidates claimed a strong religious belief, a strong religious identity, one that guides their decision-making, I think voters would at least have some way to investigate the candidate's worldview. Look, if I'm a, 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 a person who's religious and I tell you that I, will, I, I want to follow the teaching of my re- religious leader, whether that's Buddha or whether that's Christ or whether, whatever, whoever it is, well, unlike party platforms that evolve every four years, the ancient scriptures that form the basis for religious belief, okay, they've been available for centuries, if not millennium, depending on the religion, right? Religious candidates have an ancient, publicly available religious platform to give voters a sense of what they believe, what they think is important, what they would do if they were elected. It doesn't mean that politicians will necessarily abide by those platforms, but they, you know, after all, we are fall, you know, fallible, uh, failing human beings. That's true. But candidates who possess a clear religious worldview should be much easier to assess. Two, the candidates who are religious, their religious identity grounds their moral decision making. Every politician's got to decide what establishes the foundation for his or her moral beliefs. Right? All are, you know, are your moral beliefs just simply a matter of personal opinion? If so, how can we ever claim that one person's moral truth is better than a, or more right than another? Are all moral truths simply a matter of cultural consensus? If that's the case, then how can we ever judge one society's behavior to be wrong or immoral, especially if that group is larger than ours or more powerful than ours? Are all moral truths simply the result of human evolution? 
If that's the case, then we how can we be sure that our notions of good or bad aren't going to change again in the future? And why should we believe that our moral intuitions today are any truer than the moral intu intuitions we had before we evolved? So candidates who claim a strong religious belief, they ground that belief in the transcendent, unchanging nature of God rather than the evolving subjective opinion of individuals or the opinions of groups. And for that reason, voters can assess a religious candidate's moral positions by examining the ancient, the, the publicly available religious texts, right? Those religious codes and, and what is uh, proclaimed and, and, and proposed in those texts, that hasn't changed. And they transcend the personal opinion of each candidate. They transcend the personal opinions of the party or the group think of the party to which the candidate belongs. Now, again, it doesn't mean that politicians will always behave according to their religious code of conduct because they're fallible, right? Uh, just like every other human. But strongly religious candidates embrace an unchanging moral standard that you as the voter can understand and evaluate. Let me give you one last thing. One last reason why I think that we should want our, our candidates, our political candidates, to hold strong religious views. Their religious identity, that's going to be our first clue to hypocrisy. The title of hypocrite, you know, someone whose behavior contradicts what, what, what they claim or they believe, that continues to be a label that is feared by most political candidates. Let's be honest about that. Americans are still uncomfortable with politicians who flip on issues when they were very strongly held a belief uh, prior to that. But think about that for a minute. Unless a candidate's personal views are well known, right, it's kind of difficult to know if that candidate is behaving in a hypocritical way or if they're just simply acting in a manner that's consistent with their private intuitions, their private opinions. Now, religious believers, on the other hand, they have a well-established and easily accessible set of moral codes and principles. They're available for every voter. If they care enough to investigate it, they can look at the claims of each candidate's scripture. Strongly religious candidates are much easier to identify as hypocrites for two reasons. One, their beliefs are publicly available. Two, their moral standard, the moral perfection of God, is impossible to achieve with regularity. Now, you, even though you may not thoroughly know the standard that's held by some religious candidate, um, especially this, if you don't know the standard that's held by a non-religious candidate, how could you ever judge whether or not he's being a hypocrite? You don't even know what his standard is. For all you know, he's behaving perfectly in line with his terrible standard. But that's not the case for, for religious candidates. The beliefs of religious candidates give them nowhere to hide. That doesn't mean, again, that, that, that religious politicians will act consistently in a way that is consistent with their religious beliefs. In fact, I think if they hold these high moral religious beliefs, they're far more likely to fall short consistently, especially if their standard is the perfection of God. But strongly religious candidates, they've got to continuously wrestle with their own hypocrisy because they're not measuring themselves on a daily basis against what they want to be that day. They're measuring themselves on a daily basis against an authoritative divine code of ethics. That doesn't change. So look, I, I, so while most Americans don't think it's important for politicians to hold strong religious beliefs, we know that's growing, that group is growing, I think there are three good reasons for both religious and non-religious voters to want religious candidates, especially if we care about the way that politicians approach the world, how they determine moral truth, how they even navigate their own personal hypocrisy. I think we ought to want this kind of view because it makes it easier for us to assess. And by the way, our kids are watching those of us who hold these views. 
And this is what we talk about, the context of truth in relationships, right? Uh, my, my buddy Sean McDowell recently was talking to me about how when he first wondered out loud to his father, Josh McDowell, if Christianity you know, was true or not. And he talked to his dad about it. And his dad said, hey, you just need, I'm glad you're, you're searching. Don't take my word for it. I know if you search for the evidence, you're going to find the evidence. You're going to end up as a Christian. And he seemed so calm about it. And years later, Sean asked his dad, Josh, well, tell me, what were you really thinking when I told you I wasn't sure if Christianity was true? And what Josh said to me was striking. And it demonstrated the relationship between truth and relationship. Here's what he said. He said, you know, I knew that you would actually go out and research this. And in the end, I knew how strong our relationship was. In other words, it wasn't just the strength of the Christian worldview. He knew that they had a strong personal relationship. So take this as a cautionary tale. If you're concerned about truth and the next generation, be equally concerned about your relationships with the next generation. Let's take the time to go out and build strong relationships so that we have earned the right to speak to our kids about truth. Thanks for joining me this week at Cross-Examined Radio. I am Jay Warner Wallace sitting in for the esteemed Frank Turek. Join us again right here next week as we continue to discover what is true. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.